Hi, Simran. Welcome to Talk Show with Aaron. So happy to have you here. How are you? This morning you spoke, keynoted South by Southwest, thousands of people in the audience. How did that feel? I felt great. Um, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, I'm also relieved that it's over. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, these are these are the kinds of things you look forward to, um, especially in the kind of work that I do, and, and I don't take the opportunity for granted. And at the same time, um, I'm I'm walking away feeling like as 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 exciting and as important as I was. I, there's still so much more to do. And so I'm feeling energized by it too. It's amazing that South by is welcoming in these deeper, harder, important conversations. And I think you've really been a big advocate for facilitating that deeper work. There are so many stories that you share in your amazing book that we are definitely going to dive into. But can you just share one of the stories that really led you to the work that you're doing right now? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll share one that um, I didn't share this morning at South by, uh, and it has to do with um, an experience I had at airport security once, and it was pretty soon after 9-11, I got racially profiled, which is pretty typical. Um, and through that process, it was clear the TSA agents didn't know their own policies and they were insisting on having me take off my turban and, you know, inspecting everything and having worked on those policies, I knew that they were misguided and, and I couldn't get them to follow their own policies. I, I was so frustrated. Eventually, um, they offered to take me to a bathroom so that no one would see me, but I still had to take off my turban. Um, and so I walk away feeling really frustrated. And I shared that experience on social media, which I hadn't done before. And my best friend in high school texted me immediately. And he was like, I can't believe that happened to you. And it just struck me that he was my best friend. He had been there with me through so much of the racism I dealt with. And how could it be that he couldn't believe it? Like, of, shouldn't he know? And so I asked him that and he said, you know, I assumed you had these kinds of challenges, but you just never talk about them. And it was that interaction that made me start to question my approach to the racism that I experienced daily. Uh, by by keeping it to myself, by bottling it up. Um, part of what was happening was I wasn't giving people the chance to understand what it was like in my skin and not giving them a chance to show up. And, and ultimately, what transformed me was a quote by James Baldwin that's at the front of the book, actually. He says, if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. And so that was a completely transformative moment for me, one where I, for so long, had been closed off to sharing the experiences that I had for so many reasons, but really starting to embrace the importance of sharing my story with, with people, especially the people that are close to me and that I love. Wow. I'm so sorry that happened. 
Yeah, thank you. That's all right. I mean, these kinds of things happen to all of us in our own ways. And because because of the way that I look with my turban and beard, um, I may be targeted in different kinds of ways in this moment. Um, but, but I think part of our reality is, is we all face these difficulties in some way. That's a really beautiful lens to see the world with. And I know a core tether in your book. When I lived in Mumbai, I learned about Sikhism, or it was this part that was northern India, and it's now Pakistan. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a Sikh, what that looks like for you? Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, uh, the Sikh tradition was founded about 550 years ago uh, in the region of Punjab, which is now northern India and modern-day Pakistan. And... It emerged in a context that is not that different from our world today. Uh, there was immense cultural mixing. Um, it was ethnic diversity, linguistic diversity, religious diversity. And people were really trying to figure out how to live together. And one of the challenges that really plagued society was hierarchy these structures that people had produced that ultimately said, I'm more important than you, or I'm better than you on different bases, right? It might be on the basis of caste, might be on the basis of gender, might be on the basis of religion. But, but really the, the frustration that people were feeling at the time and the difficulty that they faced was on this issue of divisiveness, I mean, very much like we have today. And the founder of the Sikh tradition was born into that context, Guru Nanak. And he looked around and he saw the suffering and he saw the pain and he saw an answer. And that answer was rooted on the basis of a shared humanity of all people, what we call Ikonkar. And that vision of oneness is the basis of Sikh philosophy. And it created a community uh, that has flourished. It's now the world's fifth largest religion. Uh, there are millions all over the world. Uh, and it's a, it's a community and a vision that's endured for centuries now. And, and I, I think what I really love about it is this outlook that's grounded in a sense of connectedness that then leads to a life of love and that love inspires service. And those three pieces together, I think, are the foundation of Sikh philosophy that creates such a great and powerful way of living in this world. Is Guru Nanak's teaching still present today? Is this somebody that, like, he has mm -hmm. disciples and you can study under his practices? That's right. So his teachings and, you know, the Sikh faith being a relatively young one, the youngest of the world religions. One of the uh, miracles of the tradition is we actually have the writings of the original figures themselves. So we have access to Guru Nanak's. It's all poetry. It's all song. Uh, we have access to that. It's been preserved. And his successors, uh, the 10 gurus, uh, we have a repository of their writings too. And it's part of what's become known as the Sikh scripture the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, and the, the writings are really folk, I mean, it's mystical poetry. 
I mean, that's, that's what it is. And it's really focused on explicating what it's like to be in a spiritual state of love. And then what is, what does it look like to get there? So it's, it's not prose or narrative in the way that you find in so many other scriptural traditions. I mean, it's song, it's poetry, um, and it's very devotional. Um, and it's all about finding love within your life and how you can get there. It's so interesting because I, I think about my own journey and how I hated Hebrew school. I mean, my parents would take me to Hebrew school. They would take me to lessons to get my bat mitzvah. And I, like, one time I begged my mom. I sobbed. I said, please don't make me go. I really don't want to go. And today I'm an Israel educator, and I talk a lot about weaving in Jewish mysticism in my practice. Are you, is it interesting to you that a lot of your work today is your religion, your culture? Yeah, I mean, my story is not very different from yours. I also uh, did not like studying religion when I was growing up. I mean, I felt like I was forced into it on especially weekend. Like, who wants to do that I on a weekend? I want to play soccer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, um, yeah, it very much was, um, a, it, it felt like it was a family obligation, religion. Like, we just did it because our parents wanted us to. It's not like we saw much value in it. At least I can speak for myself. I didn't see much value in it. And it was almost like, let me learn the language. Let me wear a turban because I'm supposed to, not because I want to. Uh, and as I, as I grew older, um, kind of like you, it sounds like, I started to see the value in it and to recognize, hey, this tradition has something special to offer me that I'm not finding anywhere else. And if I let it go, then I might slip into the same kinds of unhappiness that so many people around me are experiencing. And so that's that's been a big reason why I found myself embracing sick teachings and sick blessing and in a way that I never would have imagined when I was younger. And now it's your life's work. Now it's my life's work. And it's, I mean, like you, I imagine part of what's, part of what really feels like the privilege is it's a tradition that I love and that I try to live into. It's also one that I get to study and learn about, right? It's, it's, it's about my own practice, but I've been able to enrich that practice through my professional work in this world. And so, yeah, that feels really special to me. So the main identifier of, of you or your culture is your turban. And this is probably one of the first things, if not the first thing people see when you walk into a room. Can you tell us the sacredness of, of wearing a turban and what this means to you? Yeah, you know, there's so there's lots of different reasons that six give for for why they wear a turban, and I'll tell you, for me, part of part of my commitment to it is that it represents my values. So, so that's one, right? Like the turban to me, unlike what a lot of people assume, it means that I'm going to live with love. And service and justice, right? That's what I'm thinking about when I tie my turban every morning. Another part of it creates a sense of connectedness within my community. It's historical, right? When I tie my turban, I'm thinking about people in the past who looked similar to me, 
people who I want to look like, and also people all around the world who I've never met, who have the same, the same shared experience. So there's something really connective about that. There's also something really rebellious about it that I love. And what I mean by that is, I mean, there, there are two levels there. One is historically, culturally, only the elite were allowed to wear turbans. Mm. I mean, it was kings. And in our tradition, we don't believe that people in positions of privilege are better than anyone else. And so what our gurus wanted to do was to smash any kinds of hierarchies that indicated people are better than you. And what I love about their approach was instead of telling kings to stop wearing turbans, let's just empower other people and say, hey, you're just as good as them. Start wearing a turban, right? I, I love the spirit of that. I mean, it's so audacious. Um, and so there's there's rebelliousness in there. And I think also here in America where wearing a turban makes me a target. I mean, it's a, it's a choice that I make every day to be a mark for bigotry and hatred. There's something rebellious about that too, right? It's like, hey, you want me to come and get me, right? And you don't want people like me here. Well, you're going to have to learn to deal with it. And that spirit of rebelliousness, I, I, I mean, there's, I love it because it's mischievous, but in all, in all the good ways, right? Like it feels like you're provoking in the ways that we need to provoke um, and in a way that challenges people to stretch and grow and, and to live into the ways that we want them to be. So those are some of the reasons why the term feels so meaningful to me. I love the rebellious part. I love all of it, but you're so right. It is. It's such a rebellious act. Uh, it shouldn't be, but to honor that. And then you get to honor the ritual of living like a king. Yeah, I think that's cool. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I think about a lot, especially nowadays, is in our tradition, we're, we're taught to stand up against injustice and to stand up for those who are most vulnerable. And part of what it means to wear a turban is to put yourself on the front lines of hate. And so it's almost like saying you to get to other people you want to target First, you have to go through me. It's it's inviting the bigotry and, and essentially offering yourself as a shield to others. And I think there's something really uh, resonant about what the Sikh tradition teaches us in that regard, about standing up for others, especially those who need it. The way Sikh religion was taught to me was that it was a marriage between Islam mysticism and Hinduism. Like there, there's marriages there. And then it was as a student of Kundalini Yoga studying under Sikh gurus. It's so interesting when chanting Ekongar was something that I would do in a studio in you know Rishikesh, India, or also in the West Loop outside, like in Chicago. Can you tell us a little bit about like how did this come to be? The difference between Kundalini Yoga tradition and then also where it overlaps with Sikhism, did it just kind of become a Western fad? Because it is these very sacred, sacred potent words and rituals. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, so I'll, I'll step back and say the, it's a very common 
way of understanding Sikhism to say that it's a blend of these different traditions. I would say that the way most Sikhs see it, including myself, and, and this is as a scholar as well, um, there are elements of other traditions that you'll find in Sikh philosophy. Uh, there are terms and words that you'll notice that are interacting as well. Um, but in terms of the tradition at its core, um, what you would see from, a, from an academic perspective and, and even from a practitioner's perspective is that Sikh philosophy and the Sikh way of life is actually independent from the others. And, and part of the way that I would describe that is to say, that's all the elements of a of an independent tradition in the way you would expect, right? It has its own scripture. It doesn't follow the Quran or the Vedas. It has its own founder, right? Guru Nanak. Um, it has its own set of rituals and ceremonies. Um, it has its own unique theology. So in many ways, you can see how Sikhism emerges in a context where there are other religions with which it's interacting. And you can see how it is emerging as this independent worldview uh, that, that essentially offers a third path within this context that is neither Hindu nor Muslim. And part of the reason why this is important to set up is in a context where you know, South Asia and South Asian religion is so broad and diverse and often intermingling in ways that feels unfamiliar to Westerners. A lot of Westerners have a hard time wrapping their heads around, well, there's this massive tradition, as we understand it, Hinduism, that doesn't actually have a single scripture, that doesn't actually have single God? Like, what are we actually pointing to when we're talking about Hinduism? And what ends up happening is so often we just throw things together and say, oh, well, I don't really know what that is. It must be a version of Hinduism. It must be a version of that. The same thing can end up happening, especially in the way we orientalize religions. Um, when we talk about something like Sikhism. And so to your question about Kundalini, which I think is a really good one and a really important one and a really confusing one, I think, for, for a lot of us who grow up here in the West, including me, it's this question of like, what's, what's the relationship between Sikhism and Kundalini Yoga, which so often is presented to us as being one and the same? Um, and, and I'll say historically, there hasn't really been a strong relationship uh, between Sikhism and Kundalini. I mean, I, it's, I didn't even hear the words Kundalini Yoga. I mean, this is not just historical. This is me growing up here in the West. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was completely foreign to me. And what I came to learn over time was that there was a figure who was Sikh, uh, who was sharing Sikh philosophy uh, and became very popular among Westerners, Yogi Bhajan. Um, and he, in, in his view of Sikhism, brought Kundalini Yoga as a practice and sort of fused them together. And it was his approach uh, that has been in many ways the Kickstarter for Kundalini practice in the West, 
mean, it, I, in my view, it's the most popular form of Kundalini that we've seen. Um, and so for people who are encountering it for the first time, it's so easy to see them as one and the same, right? I know that there is this Sikh group. I know they practice Kundalini yoga. They must be fused together in the way that they're presenting. But what I, what I would offer is um, that's not actually how most Sikhs experience their tradition. Kundalini yoga is not part of their practice unless it's by choice. It's not something that's designed within the DNA of the tradition. I just want to add a little caveat here to anyone who's watching and listening. In, in my work, I typically don't quote Yogi Bhajan anymore because it came out that he was this horrible horrible person, a rapist, like really took advantage of his students and also shares the sacred teaching of separating the guru from the teachings, separating the practices from the leader. And those practices can be potent. I, I find them quite activating. So when somebody in a Kundalini lineage is chanting Ekongar, Satgur Prasad, is that something where like a, a typical Sikh family would chant these scriptures or these words together, or that's yoga in the West? I would say primarily yoga in the West. So that's, I, I hear that, I've, I've encountered it, I've been surprised by it myself, um, and I don't mind it. I mean, you know, some might say, well, this is a form of cultural appropriation. My view on it is when it comes to spiritual practice, like that's that's what it's for, right? Mm -hmm. Like these these ideas aren't exclusive to me or to the Sikh community or Punjabis, like they're, they're for everyone. And so that's not really what, it's, it's not really something that bothers me, but it's also not something that comports with my way and, and, and most, how most Sikhs practice their faith and how they interact with, you know, these, these, these words like Ikonkar and Satgur Prasad. That's so, I find that to be very rebellious also, allowing people to take the practices that resonate with them, even if they come from a different culture. Like when Madonna wore the red string, go for it, girl, I love it. When people talk about Kabbalah as a Jewish mystical route to really do anything, if it resonates, go for it. And I think that's so interesting about just how this has shifted within our cultures. Who is God? when it comes to Sikhism? Is it monotheism? Is it idols? Yeah, it's a good question. So I would say um, for most audiences, I would I would move into the monotheism, pantheism, like all that stuff. Um, but for you and, and your people, I think, I think I can go a little bit deeper and say the categories that we have in the West to describe and understand God. I, I, I don't think they apply to how we think about God. And 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 one of the challenges is even using the word God itself is it comes with baggage. And and so maybe what I can do is give a sense of how I think about divinity. Um, maybe as a force, as an energy, as some some transcendental being that is permeating all of society. One of one of the lines from scripture that's coming to mind is Sabgobindha 
sab gobinda and gobinda bin nahikoi. Everything is divine. Everything is divine without, like there's there's nothing that's that's not divine. Without the divine, there's nothing. And that's, it's so different from how we t- talk about and conceptualize God that it doesn't even make sense to me to use that word, even divinity. It's hard because what I want to say is when, when you say, what is God? I'm, it's, it's almost like, what is not? Like, what is not God mm-hmm. in our worldview? Like everything, everything is God. And that's just not the material world. And it's not just people, it's also time, it's location. I mean, it's whatever your experience is, God is in that too. That's our teaching. Um, one of the ways that it comes up in scripture that I love is the creator is in the creation and the creation is in the creator. Absolutely ubiquitous in all spaces Mm. and so really the the question of what is god i'm like man it's almost the opposite question right like it's it's what's what's not god and and what would our lives look like if we thought that way instead of how we think about it now i'm really in this with you Mm -hmm. i think that's so interesting because in Judaism, we have the the Shema that we'll say multiple times throughout the day, and it's very monotheistic. Hear out thou, Lord, like Israel, Adonai is one, God is one. And we even have words like Hashem, which is the name, or yud heh vav heh But there's not necessarily, we'll say, we'll say God, like there's not a name versus so many other organized religions can say a specific Jesus or Buddha or Allah. So it sounds like there isn't a specific name. Yeah, you know, it's I, I love that you're saying that. We we will say um one of the words we use is anamha, without name. Mm. God is without name. And, and and part of what you find in our tradition is we use synonyms for divinity that are qualities rather than names and and part of what i think that's doing is telling us that as people we can also aspire to those same qualities that are godly that are divine and so you know we ikonkar which you you said um it's talking about oneness the the integrated force um satnam about truth right the name is truth Kartapuruk, uh, the, the creative being, Nidvo, fearless, Nirvad, uh, without en- enemies. I mean, like, this is how we I could chant that. this with you. I, know, I mean, I'm, I'm like, like I really know itching. it. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching you itching to say it. So it's like, but, but like, as you know, we're not sitting there saying God's name for the sake of saying God's name. Like, these are qualities. Like, that's, that's what it means to have a conception of God, right? Like, what, what good is it if it's not transforming you as a person? And part of that transformation happens through understanding what those qualities are that you're trying to bring into your life. I love it. God is everywhere. Everyone has access to this type of energy. When it comes to, I always like to talk about grounded rituals when people can listen or watch this and take something with them when they're in the thick of the 
emotion, depressed, anxious, insecure, stressed, feeling like a bad parent, feeling like a bad partner, bad friend. Do you have any rituals or practices that you pull from that are, are more sacred, maybe seek lineages that you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll share some of my more personal ones. And, and one of them I actually shared on the South by stage today. Um, as I was sharing there, uh, one of one of the places where I go uh, when I get upset is to to denigrate myself. Right. And I, I I'm pretty quick sometimes when when life gets hard um, to ignore my own self-worth. And I always go back to the same line from Guru Amar Das, the third Sikh Guru. Uh, he says, Man tu apna mool Oh my mind, you are a you are an embodiment of the light. Recognize where you come from. And that line, for whatever reason, it's it's really stuck with me in in this simple facticity of it, right? It's just it's not. There's no question. There's no aspiration. It's just telling you what to do. Like this is what you are, and all you have to do is recognize it. And and in those moments where I'm not recognizing it, the the directive within that simple sentence. Right, the message of just be who you are, mm. just see who you are, just understand who you are. Um, that, like, just reflecting on that, even if I sit with it sometimes for five, 10, 15 minutes, it can get me back to where to where I want to be in terms of seeing myself for who I am rather than less than or inferior. Something that's so interesting and a tether that I see in the self improvement world is the phrase, I am enough, or I am worthy. And what I think is so interesting about what you said is in the verbiage that you use, it's charged in a different way. So I implore anyone who's who's listening, if you connect to a different language, or if your ancestors spoke a different language, maybe find a phrase that feels nourishing to you. And maybe there's added healing there. Yeah, just came to me. So you have two daughters. Yeah, babies. You have babies. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're older now, but they'll always be forever, babies. Forever babies. Yeah. <laughs> Is it important to you that they stay within Sikh culture, or I mean, how how young are they? Five and seven. So you're not necessarily thinking about their future partners. Partners, not so much. But I am. You know, it's interesting for me. I think for my parents when they moved to this country and were raising us. Uh, there was a big question about how do we preserve heritage? And I think that was really important to them. I think identity was really important to them. And it's important to me to a degree. Um, but when I'm thinking about imparting sick wisdom to them, there are actually two other priorities that I feel. One is I just want to share with them what I love. And so giving them this tradition that I've inherited, um, it feels important, but it doesn't feel so important that if they decide later to discard it, uh, it I, I don't feel so attached to it in a way that I think I would have expected. I, you know, I'm, I'm open to it. The other part of it that 
feels really important to me is I have found this philosophy to really to be an armor against so much of the difficulty that we face in our world. And I mean, in a way it's, it's, it's like a shield. Um, but in a way I also think about it as, as a set of tools, um, you know, especially as we're having conversations culturally around resilience and how important it is who's able to bounce back, who's able to take on challenge, who comes out on the other side stronger rather than weaker. I mean, that's that's what I want to give my girls and that's what I found through living by sick teachings. And so that's the other part of it that I think about a lot. What are What are some of these ideas that can prepare them for difficulty that they're going to face inevitably, like like we all do? Um, and so that's that's part of what I'm trying to instill in them now. Are there female identifying, like similar to a turban that women wear to identify that they're part of the Sikh culture? Yeah, good question. So so women can wear turbans if they choose to. Uh, many do, uh, though, of course, it's, as you've noted, more common for men. Um, Probably the most obvious signifier for a Sikh is the, the kara. Men and women equally. Um, women also will not cut their hair, typically, and so they'll have long, uh, long hair. Um, and then the other articles of faith that we keep, along with the kara, they all start with a K mm-hmm. in Punjabi. Um, women will maintain those two if they've been initiated. What is the the kara? Kara, yeah. It, what does it symbolize? You know, again, people will have different explanations for for what it symbolizes. Some will say it reminds us of the eternality of divinity, uh, the cycle of life. Um, some will say it's a reminder for me to always perform good actions, and and so functionally, I think all of those can be true for people. But ultimately, I think it's not a functional meaning. Um, it is seen among six as a gift from the guru. These are, this is the identity that they've bestowed on us, like the turban, like the biggest reason for wearing it is actually not rational. It's a relationship in the same way that I wear a wedding ring. It has nothing to do with the value of the ring itself. It has more to do with what it means to me for that relationship, right? What it signifies to me personally. So it's it's more of an emotional connection than one that's based on reason or functionality. So you're first generation American and I'm third generation. And something that I think about all the time is how we assimilate, how we assimilate into a culture, uh, obviously a very Western American culture, And we have these ancient rituals from our specific religions or cultures and how they become a different version of them once we fully adapt our persona slash new persona in American culture. And sometimes I wonder, what if we didn't, right? Like, what if we didn't assimilate? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And like, so in, you're in New York, you're in New York City. Do you have a large Sikh community where you can hold the rituals or the holidays? And 
We do. We do. And we did. I mean, we, the community wasn't that big when I was growing up in Texas, but we did here too. Um, yeah, I think maintaining the the ritual practices is very important to a lot of us. And, and part of that is trying to ensure that we are maintaining the tradition with authenticity. And, and one, of the, one of the aspects of Sikh teachings that I don't think will change anytime soon is that the scripture, when we read it and engage with it today in the West, uh, it's always in the original language. I mean, it's in the Sikh scripture, the songs are actually in multiple languages. And so one of, one of the things we're seeing, and this is both a challenge and a blessing, is people, including me, growing up here, don't always understand what they're saying. And so you have to develop the skill. I mean, you don't have to. Some people don't. I, I chose to. Um, but language can be a real barrier. But in the way you're describing, it's also a way of preserving mm -hmm. the ritual practice. I mean, I'm literally saying the same words that my gurus did 500 years ago. There's something really powerful about that. And so to be able to hold on to that in some way by resisting the temptation to, to translate. Now, of course, there are translations available for people who want to connect. But the ritual performance of the scripture is always in the original. And I love that. I love that too. And I mean, that's how I feel when I light Shabbat candles every Friday at sundown, like, like all my female ancestors have done. And it's so interesting. All of clients come to me and they're anxious, depressed, like they're really in the thick of it. They're disconnected from themselves. They're undernourished. They're spiritually starved. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I say is get curious about your culture. Like go back to the rituals that your ancestors practiced, eats the foods that they ate as a route to heal. And I want to talk about your book. So The Light We Give. This is beautiful. Thank you. I really enjoyed. Thank you. How was this process for you, sitting down and writing this amazing book? Um, right, writing is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a dream come true, of course. Yeah. Like I've, I've always wanted to write and I love writing. Um, the book turned out to be very different than I initially intended. I thought it would be informational. Um, I didn't expect it to be about me. I never intended that. Um, and part of what I learned through my editor was the information only lands if it's wrapped up in a story. And while I didn't want to make the story about me, my editor said, yours is a story that people just haven't heard before. And, and they'd love to hear it if you gave them the chance. And so, I mean, part of what's interesting about that is so much of the book is about moving beyond our senses of ego. And I found a real tension with, that's the message, but I'm going to center myself in the story. Like, does that really make sense? And I think ultimately I came to terms with it and I think it, it really does, it does what it needs to. Um, and, and and I think I'm able to remain true to who I am. But that was that was a real challenge in, in writing this book. The other thing that I'll say is um, I wrote a good portion of that book during the pandemic. Wow. And we had 
babies at home. I mean, the, the girls who are older now were actual babies. And so there was a lot of support from my wife who would whisk them away for a few days and take them to the park so I could write. And so, um, yeah, that's also not something that I expected that I would be uh, writing with young kids at home, which is its own challenge, but then in the midst of a pandemic. So, yeah, but it was, it was a great experience. And I actually, I mean, I'll say I learned a lot about myself through the writing process. And I also felt, feel like I, in order to, to articulate some of the ideas that felt um, almost inherent in some way, um, I really had to develop more clarity for myself. And I, I benefited from that too. I can see how it's also, as I, like I shared earlier, before we started recording, I'm also on my book deadline and writing the book and there's something cathartic about it. It's like, you're reliving a memory that happened so long ago. And yet, like, I know for myself, I wanted this book to happen years and years and years ago. And now I understand why it had to happen now Mm -hmm. so that I could look back and see it from this perspective of who I am today and then get the the story on paper. Did you have very specific writing rituals? Like you would sit down, phone off, cup of coffee, three hours writing or? That sounds like you're doing this. You're in the middle of it right yeah. now. Yeah, that's, that was exactly my ritual. It would be three hours, exactly. <gasps> oh, wow. Phone off, um, coffee. I need I need snacks when I'm eating. So I need, I need something to, yeah. So I, Your keyboard has like crumbs in it. <laughs> <laughs> Usually like dried fruit and um, maybe popcorn, like mm-hmm. something that I can just pop in my mouth and not be too distracted. Um, and, and the other part is music. I need for my best writing, I need, I need music and I need it to be energetic. It can't be slow classical. I'll probably fall asleep. Um, so I need, I need a beat. Um, sometimes dance, sometimes electronic, sometimes hip hop. Um, yeah, it's just different, different kinds of music to keep me going. That's really important to me too. That's so interesting. I need like utter silence. Yeah. I can't hear the washing machine can't even be on. Oh yeah. See, I live in New York city, so there's no such thing as silence. So maybe I'm drowning out some of the noises around me then. So when somebody reads your book, what is your highest hope for them? that they'll receive what type of healing or what type of lessons? Yeah, you know, part of part of me wants to say that I want them to encounter a story that feels unfamiliar to them and as they understand it, to see themselves in it. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to do, especially for someone like me who looks so different from most people in this country. And, and when they first encounter me, they're like, man, I have nothing in common with this guy. And I want to break that. Like, that's really important mm. to me to start breaking those assumptions of our difference. And, and part of what I've learned to believe is that if we can see the humanity and the people who seem most different from us, then we can learn to see it in everyone. So that's, that's a big goal of mine. And then the other piece is, I really do think that there are aspects of Sikh philosophy that contain answers to the questions that we don't have answers to culturally right now. Um, what does it really mean to love our neighbors, even when they don't love us back? 
Um, what does it mean to see the humanity in people who don't see our humanity? I mean, these are questions that I've had to deal with and I found answers through sick teachings. And I, I love that you brought healing into the question because that's that's what I think it is. That's what I think it's about, right? These questions aren't just rhetorical questions that we're asking in a back. I mean, these are the questions that are causing us daily frustration. I mean, they're so painful for us because we don't know how to deal with it. And I think some of what I've learned through sick teachings can help a lot of us. And that's, that's what I'm hoping people will take away. I also love how even on stage this morning at South by you talked about the, the sacredness of stories because they're so enthralling and they're emotionally charged and your book is filled with so many of them. And I think when people hear your stories, that's when they learn to love thy neighbor because they have felt similar emotions or they don't want to be part of, you know, the hope is they don't want to be part of the obstacle. They really do want to do the work to make the world a better place. Let's hope this talk show with Aaron and this audio on Wise Woman podcast goes viral and it's shared with people all around the world. What is some of the wisdom you would want to say to everyone around the world? We have this line from Guru Arjun. He says, Na ko bari, na hi bagana, sagal sang ham ko banai. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful vision of where we can be. I mean, so often we're talking about, I mean, especially in this context, we're talking about loving your enemies. And what Guru Arjun's saying here is, actually, you don't even have to have enemies. Like you, don't, you don't need to live with enemies. He says, I don't see strangers and I don't see enemies. All I see is my people. Mm. And I think raising the bar for ourselves, right? It's, it's fine to say you should love your enemies. I mean, I, I think we should. But what if we had a higher aspiration where we could get to a point where we didn't see enemies at all, where we didn't see strangers, where we saw ourselves and everyone. I mean, I think that is a much more beautiful way to live and moves us from a place of tolerance where we're willing to live alongside the people who are our enemies, our opposition, and takes us to a place of pluralism where we really see everyone's, everyone's humanity and we see their well-being is tied up with our own. I mean, I, I think that's just such a much more beautiful vision where we can, where we can all thrive. I'm moved by your message. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful call to action and I know it will inspire a lot of other people. How can everybody find you? Where can they buy the book? And please share your social media and your website. Oh, sure. Um, the book is available everywhere. So anywhere people want to look, um, it's called The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Um, my website is simranjeetsingh.org. And on Twitter, I'm Simran, S-I-M-R-A-N. And on all other platforms, I'm Sick Prof, S-I-K-H. I love it. P-R-O-F. Thank you. Sick Prof. <laughs> Simran, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for being on Talk Show with Aaron. This is it's such a joy to connect with you, to see you on stage in front of thousands and then to also connect here over hot chocolate yeah thank you thank you and good luck with your book i'm excited for it thank you so much 
Thank you, everyone. This is Talk Show with Aaron. We have new episodes every Wednesday, sometimes more. Make sure to hit subscribe and let us know what you want to see in the comments. We always love supporting you. This is your space to heal, align, and grow. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.